Boomer One follows an unemployed millennial who channels his desperation and anger, like at having to move back into his parents' basement and being broke, into a grassroots campaign to force baby boomers out of the workforce. And in the book, this leads to a more or less open revolution of millennials attacking boomer icons. What inspired you to write a novel about this sort of intergenerational strife? There's a thing called the deep web that you can access again through that thing called the onion router, where it's a little bit more like what the internet was supposed to be back when some guys at at MIT were envisioning it in the 80s, which is that um, I'd just have my node and you'd have your node and then you can enter into this space of chaos. Bluegrass connects all three of these main characters. They all play bluegrass. So this is interesting to me because you're this Jewish guy from the suburbs of the Northeast and... Bluegrass music, as you know, has its roots in the Christian religion and music. And so I'm wondering where your interest in that came from. Once you hear that story about Chuck Berry standing outside the door of the Grand Old Opry and listening to Bill Monroe playing his his licks and then trying to figure out how to do those on the guitar, like it is the early iteration of, of rock and roll on, on some level. I'm about a third of the way into the book. That love story could totally have happened here in Asheville where it's, you know, you can't, you know, throw a musician without hitting massage therapist and vice versa. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. (laughs) Very true. Warning, this episode may inspire revolution, unsavory internet activity, and a love of bluegrass music. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is Lit! Hey Lit listeners, welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey everybody, I'm Trevor Noah, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. For more info on the podcast, me, or Searching for Jimmy Page, Check out my website, christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you've got an idea for a future episode, maybe a favorite rock novel you want to see featured on the show, or you just want to connect, find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. And you can email me at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com. I love hearing from all you lit listeners out there. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's spread the word. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. If your jam is bluegrass music, revolutionaries, political rants, and the wild west of the internet, otherwise known as the deep web, you're going to love this episode. Daniel Torday is here to talk about his novel Boomer One, a story that follows bluegrass musician, underemployed millennial, and now PhD in English, Mark Brumfeld, who channels his desperation by posting a series of online video monologues that critique baby boomers and their powerful hold on the job market. When the videos go viral, Mark loses control of what he began, 
with consequences that ensnare him in a matter of national security. Later, mandolin player for the bluegrass band Unspoken Tradition and music marketing director for Crossroads Studios, Ty Gilpin joins me to give a crash course on bluegrass. But first, I'd like to welcome Daniel Torday to the podcast. Daniel Torday is the author of The Last Flight of Poxel West and Boomer One, a two-time winner of the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction and the Sammy Roar Choice Prize. Daniel's stories and essays have appeared in Tin House, The Paris Review, The Kenyon Review, and M Plus One, and have been honored by the Best American Short Stories and Best American Essays series. He is a professor of creative writing at Bryn Mawr College. His fourth novel, The Twelfth Commandment, was published in January 2023 by St. Martin's Press. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Dan. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Christy. Well, I'm glad to have you. So there's a lot of bluegrass music in your novel, Boomer One, as well as a punk element. So I'm assuming you're a fan of both genres. I also know you play guitar, mandolin, violin, and viola. So I can't wait to find out more about your musical proclivities. Let's play a set of five questions. What music video made the biggest impression on you? So I took this question a tiny bit sideways, um, and I went with with a with a movie music video, which is uh, the band's The Last Waltz. Oh, nice! Um, I'm a huge, huge, huge band fan, and you were mentioning bluegrass earlier, and and you know, Levon Helm was a fiddle and a mandolin player, and you know, I think for me, like that's the perfect music, just that kind of right in between folk music and rock. And you know, when I was a kid and and saw those guys playing. Neil Young and Johnny Mitchell and Van Morrison. It was just like, that was, I was like, that is a thing I would like to do with my life. Okay. Now I have seen that it's not been, it's been a while, but great choice. As I've right. had people say like hard days night. So you're not the first person to kind of go in there sideways. Yeah. The, uh, the straight on would be when I was terrified of Michael Jackson's thriller when I was like six, but that, <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. if that fits the, fits the musical genres here. <laughs> If you could see any band or solo artist, living or dead, in concert, who would it be? Yeah, it would be the height of the Flying Burrito Brothers with uh, Graham Parsons at his absolute 26-year-old debaucheryist, and Chris Tillman doing his thing. And uh, yeah, maybe probably like uh, they just came from Laurel Canyon down into L.A. And uh-huh. Joan Didion was in the crowd with me, and, and it was just, uh, it was heaven. the gilded palace of sin album framed on my wall over here nice yeah and if i could make any music it would be grand music that oh, that yeah. would be the music i love Graham parsons and i interviewed pamela day Barr not long ago and she was a good oh, friend wow. of his yeah so we were talking a lot about that because they're, they're these two women on the album cover I'm, i've always wondered who they are and i thought maybe she would know she said they were just models but we had a great conversation uh, about Graham. so that's cool yeah my most fun uh, i was an editor at esquire magazine in mm-hmm. my 20s and i got to interview Emily Harris for about four hours in a hotel room and uh, wow. <laughs> it was like an hour of what the magazine needed and then like three hours of me just asking questions about that period. That would be amazing. And I'm sure she had some great Graham stories. Amazing Graham stories. Okay, Dan, you're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book, Boomer One. 
Who is it? And what do you do? Yeah, for Boomer One, I feel like this this one has the answers itself, and it's got to be David Crosby. There's a plot point in the book where uh, these kids who are trying to start a revolution of millennials taking baby boomers down uh, wear these David Crosby masks. And in the end papers of the heart of the hardcover of the book, there's a there's an illustration of what certainly looks to be like uh, some LSD end papers with David Crosby's face on it. So Cros would have to uh, would have to be the one reading it. And the question is, how pissed would he be? <laughs> I don't think he'd be pissed. Uh, I think I think at this point in his life, he would be very tickled. And I think if yeah. it was 30, then I would be zero and he'd be mad. <laughs> okay, fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Okay, what's well, super nerdy here, and that's uh, when I hear Stairway to Heaven, I think of Wayne's World, the movie. Oh, really? Are you, my dog's barking in protest right now. Oh, really? I'm sorry, pup. <laughs> because when I was in, uh, when I was like fourteen, I uh, I actually went to Saturday Night Live, saw saw some Wayne's World, and then wow. in the movie there was like the, they like tapped the sign, the no stairway sign, when they went into the like, guitar center or whatever. So somehow that has now been linked for me forever. Nice. Now, were you one of these kids who went into a music shop and picked up an acoustic guitar and started playing the intro? I, so that's the thing is I wasn't. I was like uh, I was like picked up a guitar and was just like this isn't a violin and didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I was very intimidated <laughs> by the people who knew what they were. Now and now I can get it. You know, maybe I'll start playing like the beginning of the wait or something. Okay, nice. What's your favorite rock novel? You know, it's tough. I feel like my favorite rock novel is like what I sometimes think of as the only rock novel is Don DeLillo's uh, Great Jones Street. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of really good rock novels, but I don't know that I've read that many of them. And, uh, and I think it's really, really hard to write a good rock novel. And I think it's not hard to write a novel that has rock and roll in it, but for a novel that truly just circulates around an, an era for me, it's, it's gotta be that, that's a little book. Yeah. Jeff Jackson, who wrote uh, destroy all monsters, the last rock novel pick that. I tend to think like pre-1980 when you ask me about a book. I love that. I love Jeff Jackson's book. And oh, he's uh, obviously wonderful. There are some, some more contemporary books with a lot of rock in them, and I just uh, need to read them more. Yeah, there actually are quite a few really, really good ones out there. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Daniel Torday. And make sure you stick around for the last segment of the show when bluegrass musician Ty Gilpin drops by to give a crash course on bluegrass music. This is Daniel Torday, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Daniel Torday, author of the novel Boomer One. So Boomer One follows an unemployed millennial who channels his desperation and anger, like at having to move back into his parents' basement and being broke, into a grassroots campaign to force baby boomers out of the workforce. And in the book, this leads to a more or less open revolution of millennials attacking boomer icons. So I know you were born in 1978, so you're not a millennial, you're not a Gen Xer, what inspired you to write a novel about this sort of intergenerational strife? Yeah, I've got the like super nerdy answer and the less nerdy answer, and I'm going to give you <laughs> both of them. Okay. Uh, the nerd, the nerdy answer is my first full length novel I, I just published, and uh, and one of the characters is a Shakespeare scholar, and so I've been reading all these Shakespeare plays, and I was reading Julius Caesar, and uh, there just was like there's a moment when Cassius and Brutus are talking about killing Caesar, where the way that they talk about sort of like who he was to them, and he's kind of this like avuncular figure, just sounded so much like the way that we talk about the um, conflict between between boomers and millennials. Hmm. Um, but then also, you know, I, I've been teaching uh, college students since I was like 27, and so th- you know, there was a moment uh, right around when Occupy Wall Street happened, where it just felt like there was a way in which the sort of like we are the 99% and they are the 1% like that, that, that worked into some burning leadership later. But, but if there were two sort of clear failings of that movement, it was just that there wasn't a single clear leader and that there wasn't a single clear request that they were making. So I think in some ways, once I had it in mind to kind of create that conflict, it felt like, okay, so I need to create a character who people could follow and there needs to be a very clear request. And so that became this character, uh, Mark Brumfeld, and the very clear request was retire or we'll retire you. So they're like specifically asking baby boomers to retire from their jobs. I know that the novel was published in 2018 and you'd already completed a draft in the summer before, I think that summer before the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. So you, okay, you had a draft before the election. How did the election with all of the fallout from that affect how you went back to the novel? It was either exciting or nightmarish. Um, I mean, I had a draft that was kind of set to go. It hadn't been copy edited yet, but I, like everybody else, didn't think that there was any way that a fascist was going to win that election, and then he did. And uh, I was in tears. And but you know, and and then I think if I had some apprehensions about the book, it was like maybe the violence that that, that takes place would would feel either irresponsible or sort of too over the top. And actually, that kind of flipped on its head, right? And there was just this sense of, oh, okay, like we're we're living in in bizarre world yeah. now. And I mean, Charlottesville sort of like happened during that period of editing, and I think there just was a sense that like some of what seemed like too much 
actually probably felt too toned down. Mm-hmm. And also, like, you know, the book has there's a group who are sort of loosely based on Anonymous, the, the group of hackers. You know, their hacks were, were, were pretty innocuous, even though some of them went to jail. Mostly it was like, you know, faxing a lot of dark sheets of paper to a major business to, to shut down their, the fax machine or ordering so many pizzas that they ran out of money. And that stuff actually like compared with how anti-Semitic and racist and homophobic and misogynistic what was going on on Reddit immediately after the election sounded just seemed way too tame. And actually, I think in the book, it kind of stayed that way. Um, I've been working for a couple of years on a screenplay version where, where it, had, it just had to be a lot louder. My impression of Mark was he could just as easily have gone far right and blamed immigrants and liberals for all of the country's problems and eventually become a Trumper. So it was just interesting that hmm. he focused his ire on the baby boomers. It's funny. I when the book came out, I uh, the the hardcover of the book first came out. I went on Kurt Anderson's show, and he Kurt has this great book called Fantasyland that's about sort of like all of the quackery in, in American history. And um, and his in, initial response to Mark's rants was he was just like, I don't know, you sound right. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, he's like, there's nothing he's saying in there that isn't true. And I think it just, but but it really did resonate for me then that like you're saying, it sort of was less about like the moment where Che tips over into. Steve Bannon or Steve Bannon chips, you know, hopes to be Jay. Um, then just once you're set on accepting that violence is an outcome in the, in the political sphere, I'm not sure that like the sort of Overton window matters anymore. Mm. You're just uh, we're we're all a little fucked <laughs> at that moment, and and I think you know that's my experience the last seven years. You know, well, I love this quote that sort of reveals his epiphany about the boomers and, and that inspires him to start posting these online rants, these video rants targeting that demographic. And of course, it escalates into this whole movement that he sort of loses control over. But he's thinking they had, and he's talking about the boomers, they had and they had and they had, as if that was the very condition of the baby boomers existence, having, owning, getting, living out bellows, I want, I want, I want, while he and his generation had not. They too wanted plenty, but they did not have. You know, I was born in 1969, so I'm I'm a Gen Xer. But all of this really resonated with me as well, especially when we get into some stuff that we'll talk about later, like the poor guy trying to get a tenure track job and you know writing Mm -hmm. this essay, Mm -hmm. this this long piece, and it got published, but it didn't make any difference. So I, mm-hmm. I, a lot of this resonated with me too. And, and I'm, where did the idea for these video rants come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me actually really quickly, uh, can I answer the first question first? Oh, yes, sir. Before sure. that? Or, or, the, or the first part of it, which is, you know, I mean, I think for me, there is a little bit of like, a, I actually am like weirdly not that confident that I know like what a generation is like and, and how that functions. But I think there is this way in which like, there's a famous quote in the Arab world and like in Saudi Arabia, and I'm going to mangle it, but, but it's from the Arabic. And it essentially says, you know, the, the grandfather rides a camel, the fa- the father drives a car and the grandson again rides a mm. camel. Right. I mean, there's this sense culturally that they just kind of like, I read this amazing piece while I was doing research about um this stuff uh, where in Iraq in like the 1905, like people would just, you could like put your finger down into the sand and just like pull oil up. Right. Or like maybe another analog for me in my head. And this might sound a little tangential is like, you know, like when I think about how my grandparents smoked cigarettes, like my grandmother who died of emphysema, like literally would say to me, you know, I I don't have colds because the cigarettes burn the germs. (laughs) (laughs) And, and there is this sense where it's just like, you know, like there was clearly somebody enjoying tobacco 
in inhaling nicotine, like in a bonfire somewhere in 1870, right. but like that period where people just like wrapped them as tight as they could in a camel filter and tore the filter off and just fucking huff those things mm-hmm. down. Like that is a very, very finite period. Right. And it, and it is about abundance and it is about geopolitics, but as much as anything, it's also just like, maybe not pure chance, but it's, it's the chance that, that they, they fell into. So, so this is a way of getting to your question. So I just tried to do like a lot of homework about the kinds of people who were involved in starting and not to like get too nerdy about it, but, but what I think we now call stochastic terrorism. So it means essentially like lone wolf terrorism, right? So there's not people, people doing act of, of violence, but there's, it's not, there's nobody telling them directly to, I mean, it's essentially the January 6th feel, right? Yes. And so, you know, I always want to tie that to sort of like examples that I feel confident if I'm just, if I'm imagining them. If there's anything that I saw in like the, from like the media literacy perspective, it's just that like we get upset about Facebook and we get upset about Twitter and we get upset about Google, but in some ways YouTube is, is the most insidious of all. I mean, the number, the number of people who have been led down rabbit holes from looking up a World War II video and like four videos later at recommending a Holocaust denier is really, it's really horrifying. It's much, much harder to monitor because it's videos, you know, and it's not written word. And I think also it was just a period where like when, when, so in the book, it's, it's, I guess it's like 2012, 2013. So it's like a moment when that kind of YouTube influence was really kind of hitting and, and was the kind of the wild west. The world is going to shit and we all know that. People freaking out like it's the Prozac. Beyond the Chino shorts got all the bras, man. One of the big analogs for me was there's a guy who called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts who created Silk Road. I don't know if you remember what Silk Road was. Mm. But Silk Road was this w- website where uh, it was actually where sort of Bitcoin had its rise because you could go there and you could order prostitutes or you could, I mean, and by you, I don't mean you or me. <laughs> One could go on there. <laughs> you could get weed from Mexico or you could get meth from uh, from overseas. And, and it all went through this thing called Tor, which is the onion router, which is this kind of uh, end-to-end encryption that was invented by the Navy and, and really kind of allowed people to get through. And in fact, so that the the U.S. government, the FBI, looked for the dread, this, this guy, Dead Pirate Roberts. They looked for him for, for five years. And they weren't able to find them. They actually could never break the end-to-end encryption. The only way they were able to find him was they eventually pinpointed where he was working on his computer somewhere in the Bay Area. And they he had made one slip-up, which is that before everything started, he had used that name, that username on a, on a Google account, and then continued to use the password from it. And so they were able to hack him that way and eventually got, uh, got him, and now he's in jail. So anyway, I mean, I think it was just like looking at people along those paths or the Boston um, Marathon bombers were, were another example that I read really deeply at just to sort of think about how they were, I don't know if radicalized is the right word, how they got from an idea or some anger in, in a moment to being able to actually like plausibly be involved in, in an act of violence. You mentioned the date or the time period of this main action in the novel, and that fascinates me too. Mark's first boomer missive is posted on June 12th, 2010. Okay, now that immediately caught my attention because I thought he could have just said he posted his first missive in the summer of, of 2010. 
June 12th. So that sent me down a rabbit hole. I'm Googling what happened on June 12th. And I found some interesting things. And before I, I get into that rabbit hole, was that on purpose? Uh, that was intentional. There, okay. there were, uh, well, you're going to say some things, but I'll just say, you know, I, I'm always sort of bouncing back and forth between trying to like actually reimagine like an, like a, a specific event and then, and then sort of pull back if it feels too kind of gilding the lily. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. So what are some things that happened on June 12th? And then I'll tell you. Well, it's Anne Frank's birthday for one thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have June 12th, 1942. She mm -hmm. received that diary for her 13th birthday. Hmm. And then, there, I mean, there's so much about this novel that's about revolutionaries. So hmm. we have that. And then mm -hmm. on June 12th in 1963, Megra Evers is murdered. Mm -hmm. And then June 12th, 1964, Nelson Mandela sentenced to life in prison. Hmm. And, okay, this isn't a revolutionary thing, but it's also the date that Nicole Brown Simpson is murdered. Whoa. Okay, so my means were a lot more sort of like practical, which is that I think I thought it was going to be much more of like an overlay of these events on top of Occupy Wall Street. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the actual sort of like unveiling into the fall of taking over Zuccotti Square. And this is where this gets really fucked up with like the January 6th stuff was that there there was a um, there was an issue of Adbusters. Do you remember Adbusters no. that magazine? Adbusters was, was like a sort of early version of like Vice and, the, and you could like get it at the local, you know, you get it at Barnes and Noble, but it was all sort of like into capitalism. And there actually was a call put out to Occupy Wall Street in, in that magazine. So I, in, in an early iteration of the book, like that date was when it would have come on the newsstand. So Mark would have actually seen it and then it would have like radicalized him. <laughs> oh. And so early on, like there, it was much more overlaid with sort of like, let's actually follow the, the sort of steps. And actually, like my editor was like, this might seem like a he was like, this is interesting to you, but <laughs> but it might be like you don't need to convince your, your reader quite so heavily that it's <laughs> tied to those events if that makes sense i mean i think i needed in order to fictionalize i needed to feel confident that like well what if i tracked him through like exactly those steps to where things could have exploded i like details like that i, I if some if a writer puts a date in a book then i just i can't help it i have to go look mm -hmm. up well did they get the day of the week right to match the actual mm -hmm. date or what was going on during that time why would they pick that date so oh and i definitely do like the homework where like there's a website i love where you can find out the weather for every day back to like 1820 and i'm like okay if i'm saying it's raining like i think I, mm -hmm. if i'm gonna if i'm gonna give a date it needs to be raining on that day you know i'm so glad to hear you say that and i don't feel as nerdy now because i, I uh, do that i'm a deeply deeply neurotic person yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> So Mark ends each rant with this quote from Walt Whitman from Leaves of Grass, resist much, obey little. That's that's part of what he ends it with. So long before he started making these videos, he was interested in writers and activists like Whitman and Emerson and Thoreau and Emma Goldman and John Brown. In fact, as I was saying earlier, he spent a lot of time writing an essay on Emma Goldman and Thoreau and Emerson. And there are other revolutionaries in this book. We have, I'm going to mangle his name. I never can say it right. Leon Chogas. Chogas? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Zolgatz. <laughs> well, there you go. I knew I was going to mangle it. I know. Zolgatz. Yeah, yep. who assassinated President William McKinley. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what your relationship is with the whole concept of revolutionaries, particularly these ones, like Emma Goldman and John Brown, especially. What, what were you trying to do? Again, I'm gonna at some point I'll stop saying words like January and sixth. But I mean I do I do think that it's just a central aspect of American history that um that it's a country that uh it was founded by by rev literal revolutionaries and, and I think it's something that we're dealing with 
always, and and obviously we dealt with it in some horrible ways on January sixth. I actually was just teaching HBO version of The Watchmen in a screenwriting class last semester, and and found myself talking a lot about the sort of Hannah Arendt uh, background to to where all of that comes from into American history of, of slavery and, and revolution, and and you know just that that Jefferson quote, you know, from time to time, the tree of liberty must be wired but watered by the blood of revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. I think it's baked into the democracy a little bit. Um, I mean, and you know, the most immediate way that that then kind of articulated itself for this book for me was when I was an undergrad, I studied with this amazing uh, nonfiction writer named Lewis Hyde. My favorite read his book, The Gift, which is like one of my favorite books. And, I have that, and Lou, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Lou was actually working on a new annotation of the Henry David Thoreau essays at that time. And so we read a lot of Thoreau with him. And when we read Thoreau's John Brown book, Thoreau talks a little bit about who John Brown was, but but we've got very deep into, um, you know, John Brown and his family going to, to Kansas and then Passawatomi cutting off the hands of 23 people and, and killing them. And I remember Lou, and this was pre 9-11, saying, you know, when you say a word like terrorist, like John Brown essentially both ended slavery or helped through Harper's Ferry and through those actions in Kansas to, to, to in Bloody Kansas to uh, to really pushing us into the Civil War, but also by any definition, was a terrorist. Mm-hmm. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Like I didn't learn enough about Reconstruction in, as an undergrad, and sorry, we're very far from rock music right now. But but, uh, but you know, I, I think, but there is revolution in rock, yes. and uh, you know, so I think for me, there just was a way in which to to treat like that question of revolution or like major uh, American societal change in a real way requires just trying to to, to square that uncomfortable circle. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell that this is this is something that is close to your heart. You tweeted this on January 15th, 2023. Uh-oh. I love reading your tweet. Oh, no. Uh, no, this is good. <laughs> no. This is good. This is not, this is not okay. controversial or anything. Cool. You said, cool. over time, it's not the writers who carefully towed the lines and avoided offense whose work has lasted. It's those who told the truth, showed what was beautiful, and saw around corners. Kind of goes on hand in hand with what you know that what we've been talking about yes i mean and i think that so that that whitman quote comes from i, I knew i had to get some leaves of grass in there somewhere and yes. there's one uh there's one called to the states and it's it's like one of the one of the most i mean you know he's singing a song of himself mostly <laughs> but it's one of the most overtly overtly political moments in all of whitman mm-hmm. and uh it, but it really is kind of a call to arms and and it is essentially a call to arms against the overreach of uh of any of any government i want to talk about Reagan, the character Reagan, because she really directs Mark to go back to those early, those first four posts that he made, where he didn't cover his face, he didn't disguise his voice, and you were talking a little bit about what amounts to, I guess, the deep web earlier. So she tells him, "Take that stuff off. You can redo it." But she starts talking. It went over my Luddite head. So we need to kind of define what you mean by the deep web. Yeah, I mean, and some of this probably has has, has changed a bit in in the six years since uh, I was doing the writing. But you know, I mean, we mostly all of us who are probably listening to this show, or you and I, use the surface web. Yes. Right? Um. So so there there is a. Uh, 
I guess we sort of know like what, what we mean by the stack now because there's a thing called Substack, right? So there's sort of all these layers of how the internet comes to us. And you and I are on Google Chrome right now, and I'm looking at my computer, and I've also got Firefox up here, and I've got Explorer up here, and those are all ways for us to go um, through the World Wide Web onto the internet. There's a thing called the deep web that you can access again through that thing called the onion router, where it's a little bit more like what the internet was supposed to be back when some guys at, at MIT were envisioning it in the 80s, which is that um, I just have my node and you'd have your node and then you can enter into this space of chaos. I will say I didn't spend a lot of time on the deep web myself. Just it to- seems like it would feel a little scary. I was reading some D.H. Lawrence last night, and he had a, he had a quote, uh, quotation from the King James where he said, that which has been seen cannot be unseen. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, you can definitely just click on... So it looks a little like if you've seen Reddit or if you've seen Craigslist, right? Like, it's just very basic. And then you click, you just click on links, and you don't know what you're going to find there. And you could very quickly find yourself seeing things that like are literally illegal for you to see at all, like child porn or scat porn or snuff films. Oh, my God. And, and one only enters it by actually signing into the onion router and being end-to-end encrypted. It is the wild west of the internet, and uh, and and it is a place where if people want to go on there and stir some shit up, that's where you do it. Yeah, it it was. She told him you need to take those early posts down, scrub your activity on the surface web, move over to the deep web where no passwords, no IP addresses that his logins could be traceable to. I'm thinking this is really kind of creepy. Well, and even a little further down the road, like now we would probably use Signal, which actually is like a somewhat, somewhat frequently used app that's end-to-end encrypted. And actually, there's a huge controversy now over Apple has just created a, um, they're, they're now making an option for you to be end-to-end encrypted on the cloud. You probably won't remember, but there was the, this couple who shot a bunch of people in San Bernardino and then killed themselves. And there was a huge controversy over whether or not Apple was going to create a back end for the FBI to be able to get into, into a phone and, and Apple wouldn't do it. I do remember that. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, was, it, it became this sort of huge, I mean, there are a lot of huge privacy issues that we're facing now that clearly mm-hmm. have to be part of the book. And, and in that case, because they were both dead, the question was, how do you, so if you need the information to potentially save people's lives, but it's not in there, then how do you handle creating, if Apple were to create a backend key to be able to get into any iPhone, the mere existence of that, soft, of that, that of those lines of code become like a massive civil liberties issue. So, I mean, uh, this is my nerdy way of saying, like, I, don't, I, I couldn't program a single line of Python if I had to, but <laughs> I, find, I find that stuff super fascinating and I love to read about it. Um, yeah. and, and so it was fun to kind of dig in so that I could fictionalize it. Yoo-hoo. Hey, lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rocket's Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rocket's Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. You mentioned Terry Gross earlier. I'm not sure if we were already recording then or not, but you know, as I told you, I, I listened to that 2015 interview. Mm-hmm. So you were a guest in 2015 to talk about your debut novel, The Last Flight of Poxel West, mm-hmm. which deals with how memoir and fiction can blur. Now, as somebody who will never have the privilege of appearing on Fresh Air, I'm curious. I want to know about that experience. Do you remember receiving the email or the call letting you know you were going to be on that show? <laughs> 
That's a great question. Yeah, I was. Uh, so yeah, I went on Terry Gross, and I live in Philadelphia, where where she records and on WHYY. Mm. So I was super, super lucky. And most people she just talks to over uh, over an open line, but I got to go just kind of be face to face with her, which was really fun. But yeah, I actually you actually uh, were there. I was there, dude. Wow. I uh, but so I actually was I was interviewing for a job at Colorado State, and I uh, I like landed in the airplane, and there was an email that said we booked Terry Gross. But it was funny because it was it, it actually this is like not so much how things tend to go now, but it was like a month ahead of time. So I just had like in my own, own neurotic way, like I spent a month just being like scared shitless of being on there. <laughs> and then by the, by the time we did it, it was just like when I finished, I was like, oh, so happy I got through that. In irony of irony is in the time since the literary producer there who does a lot of interviews now named Sam Brigger has become a good friend. His daughter plays on a soccer team with my daughter. So, um, mm. and then I actually, I had briefly had a podcast. So I have been teaching a writing for radio and podcasting class here at Bryn Mawr and bring a lot of those guys in to talk to our students about the field. So I, I have this weird thing where it's like so cool to get to do some of this stuff, but then I just kind of become this weird, like, I'm like, I actually would rather be a fly on the wall of this interview than being interviewed. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, it's like, Oh, I want to learn how to do like production and interview somebody. And- yeah. Maybe that's called narcissism or curiosity. <laughs> curiosity you can tell me. I wonder if she knows she pops up in Boomer One in a very, how shall I put it, inauspicious way? Yes. Can I reveal this? You certainly can, there? of course. All right. Terry, if you're listening, you get a trash can thrown at your production studio <laughs> in Boomer One. So take that. It's because she's a Boomer icon. Yes, she is. That was an interesting little detail to put in there after having been interviewed by her. But it, it was that was great, though. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it is a cautionary. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I took my kids to see Julius Caesar at a local production, like, maybe a year before I started writing. And, and uh, it was so funny to see, like, I think my daughter was, like, eight. So they were, like, too young to be seeing Shakespeare. And they were really bored until the assassination. And then they were super into it. Of course. But I think, in, you know, in, in such an interesting way, like, that's what that play is about, right? Which is, it's just, like, everything Brutus and Cassius are saying is pretty reasonable. And, and Caesar's time probably should come to an end. And he's deaf in one ear. And there's all this kind of crazy stuff about him. But it's just, like, but once you actually engage in the violence, the violence just begets violence. And it's yes. And I think, for me... It sort of is like the artwork for thinking about this this period we're in now, and and I don't think we're and in you know by any stretch out of it, but just you know I think the idea was like I think for me if I didn't destroy some things I loved in the book I wasn't going to be able to get into that headspace of, of then seeing what was at stake for Mark. Mm-hmm. Moving kind of into the music realm here, you said in an interview with the Millions, I felt excited in this book to have much of the revolutionary lens of Boomers and Millennials be focused on music. Literally the music of the past 100 years in American life, from bluegrass to psychedelic rock to punk and forward. And that institution sure isn't going to fall. Punk rock isn't going to soften to an autocrat's lies. It's going to gain new edge, new relevance. I suspect art's place will grow stronger, be more necessary, the uglier civic and political life gets. So that interview was conducted four years ago. Uh, You still uh, feel that same way? (laughs) I don't know. We may be into we may be far enough into the age of rapacious capitalism that art can't save anything. That's a good question. Um, well, let me put it this way: I'm going to totally sidestep your question and say something. <laughs> like when we were talking <laughs> about the the like the Arabs and their oil and the and my grandmother and her cigarettes. You know, I think the the sort of ownership of of music as an intellectual property has gone through kind of very similar progress. Where you know, in like 1918, somebody would like get like a a Jolson piece of sheet music and come and put it on their piano and play it. And like, that was the equivalent of like getting the new Billie Eilish record. 
right? Yes. And then there was this, this sort of like song catcher, Alan Lomax period in the 30s and, and, and well, I guess 20s, 30s, 40s, Bristol, Tennessee moment where suddenly there was vinyl and you could capture that and then people could actually hear it. And then there was this period in the 90s where it actually didn't matter anymore because you could burn a CD and then you could upload it to the name of the, what was the website? Yeah. There was Napster, Napster going on. Thank you. Yep. So yeah. you can put it up on Napster. And then now we've got our Spotify in our pocket and you've got the whole history of music in your pocket. Right. You know, and I think it actually does then push us back into the space where it's like, it's not a coincidence that when I was in college, I could get any piece of vinyl for $1.99. And I, and I just bought my 10 year old a uh, record player for her birthday and, and you can't get any vinyl for less than like 40 bucks. Oh my goodness. Maybe it's less what I predicted to the millions than than sort of people will want to kind of like think of music as a thing that like they own and isn't just like shoved at them all the time now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could certainly talk about like Arctic Monkeys and Wet Leg and <laughs> some 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 punk <laughs> that's exploded in the last period. Have you got color in your cheeks? You ever get that fear that you can't shift the tide that sticks around like summits in your teeth? Out of some maces up your sleeve, have you no idea that you're in deep? I dreamt about you nearly every night this week. How many I mean, and I think uh, I have my issues, obviously, with Kanye for, for because um, he's a lunatic oh, and yeah. I'm Jewish. Yeah. But um, but but you know, I mean, when I think about like what Kanye has contributed with that really rough around the edges production style that, that then you find in like Bon Iver, and actually, like now I find listening to like Olivia Rodrigo with my daughters, there is a sense that like we need that. I mean, I don't know if it, I don't know if I would necessarily define that as punk, but we do need that like that kind of ugliness and right. I've been writing a little bit about sort of like the analogs between music and, and writing. And, and one of the things that audiologists and, and social scientists found when CDs started was that actually like people really prefer to listen to records. And part of the reason is that once, once you start smoothing over all the breaks, your ear doesn't have as much opportunity to sort of meet the music, right? Like good art mm-hmm. needs to be interacted with. So when you hear a record and it has all the, all those skips or the, or just even the crackle, like what's literally happening is there's a moment where you don't hear the music and your ear has to fill it in. I was watching the new Puss in Boots with my kids last night and they had Antonio's Banderas singing with autotune on. And I was like, it's just in my head. I was just like, autotune is the worst fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. It just <laughs> makes all vocals sound bad. So I guess I would just say like, I think we're, we'll be, we've been turning a corner back towards needing a little more noise and a little more just kind of like raw sound. Yeah. And, and I, I struggle with this, the whole ease with which we access music kind of makes you not value it as much. You know, you can go anywhere and get, you don't have to go buy the album. And when you buy the album, it's, it's like a, a book with chapters, everything yep. sort of fits together. There are the pieces, but then there's the whole and the whole has a whole other meaning. Everybody has a friend who left their uh, CD book on the top of their car before a long uh, road trip, and then it fell off, and then they had no music. <laughs> right. right. Or like I remember, right. like my dad had a 1978 Volvo that was like from a very brief period when there were eight tracks players in cars, and I remember he had like I remember eight tracks. That so he had we have we had we had an eight track of Lou Reed's uh, Lou Reed's Transistor. And yes. And that was it. <laughs> And the and the cool thing about uh, those eight tracks is you can only fast forward them, right? So it was like uh-huh. if you wanted to hear Wild Side again, you had to you had to you had to forward fast forward all the way back through it. And like that music is like deep, deep, deep in the heart, you know. Oh yeah, 
more about music. Bluegrass connects all three of these main characters. They all play bluegrass. So this is interesting to me because you're this Jewish guy from the suburbs of the Northeast. And bluegrass music, as you know, has its roots in the Christian religion and music. And so I'm wondering where your interest in that came from. Yeah, some of it was just, uh, and you'll just have to excuse me for everything I'm about to say, but some of it was just being like a 14-year-old deadhead and, and listening to a lot of Grateful Dead and then picking up Holden in the Way and being like, what on earth is this? Jerry Garcia is playing a banjo. And um, and, and then some of it was going, to, I went to, to undergrad in, in central Ohio and, and I had played the violin and I played the guitar and I went down to the bluegrass music store on High Street in Columbus, Ohio, and I uh, picked up a mandolin and I, could, I was like, oh, I can play this. Uh, cause it's, you know, your left hand is a violin and your, and your right hand is uses a pick like a guitar. If you can't tell from talking to me, like I, I, I get super interested in like just the, like the histories of things and the long histories of yes. things. And I think some of, um, for the better or for worse, listening to the Grateful Dead is it's just this like jukebox of American music from the Grand Old Opry forward. And, and so once you hear that story about Chuck Berry standing outside the door of the Grand Old Opry and listening to Bill Monroe playing his his licks and then trying to figure out how to do those on the guitar, like it is the early iteration of, of rock and roll on, on some level. And, yeah. And I also just like, this might sound like the opposite of everything I've been saying, but I, I was always super intimidated by like the really heavy kind of like electronics of rock music. Like Jimi Hendrix, you mean? Well, just like I played the guitar, but like I'd always have these friends who were like rich and they had like, you know, 17 plugins already and they had four boxes mm. and they had, a, you know, a $4,000 Fender Tweed amp. And like I had like a, a Japanese Strat and a, and a little amp and I just I just was like behind, you know. And so I think the, the idea of, of these acoustic instruments that were old and that required like Mark Ribo has this great line where he talks about he's just basically like there's no such thing as a good guitar. Yeah, he's like if I'm mm. he's like if I'm playing with Tom Waits, like I could find like a plastic toy guitar for seventy five cents at a used uh, bookstore, and that might be the right guitar to play on on Bone Machine, you know. And so I think like for me, like there was just something exciting about like just the sounds that the instruments could make more than like what a computer could do to them. I mean, right. I might have actually had a musical career if I'd <laughs> learned how to use <laughs> uh, Pro Tools and and all the, and all these boxes sooner. Um, but it just was sort of that was the sound I was I was seeking, you know. What did you start out with? Was it violin? Uh, I started on violin just like Suzuki method when I was like four. Um, yeah. And then switched over to viola probably at like eight. And then decided that was all nerdy when I was like 13 and played guitar. You know, and, and now it's mostly just it's it's fun. You know, we were over some friend's house the other night just like picking up guitars and mandolins. And a friend's daughter had a fiddle and I like could wow everybody that I could just barely play the D string enough to make it not sound awful. Um, all right. <laughs> And I also just really, I love the social aspects of music too. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think that is some of the back to the, you know, the band's last waltz, just like seeing these people who could just get up and play with anybody. So I think for me, like that kind of like bluegrass jammy or, or just sort of like, you know, I mean, I, I loved that when I first started really learning to play mandolin, I was actually in New York in my twenties and I would play with these guys who have been bluegrass boys with Bill Monroe and, and all of them, oh their, 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 their rule when you learn from them was, um, you know, you just brought a tape recorder. They weren't going to write anything down. Right. Cause it's just, the music. Yeah. you want to like learn those songs by ear. So it does kind of sidestep that like song catcher conversation we were having earlier where like it is, a, it is meant to be like a oral, an oral tradition that's, that's, that's handed right. down, you know?
interested in this interview that you gave with the Rumpus at some point, where you said the model you want as a novelist is Bob Dylan. You didn't mention a, an, an author; it was Bob Dylan. So, talk to me about that a little bit. Why Bob Dylan? Yeah, I just love that. So, like you know, I think it was hard for for Crosby's Nash to be like, we just have these insane voices, and that's the model, and we created a sound, and and that's and that's the thing, and and um. I mean, I love them and I love them still. And I would listen to Graham Nash sing his cheesy songs even now. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think for me, like Bob Dylan is the consummate artist um, in that he's just constantly reinventing. I mean, yes. every time the number of different ways that he has figured out to take a song and turn it inside out. And I mean, I remember like there was a restaurant in my neighborhood here in Philly that was named one of the top 10 restaurants in America one year. And like they had like their deconstructed foie gras gazpacho and i was like this is like a bob dylan dish like it's, oh, wow. just, like, it's just like a piece of foie gras and, and some watermelon juice like it's, <laughs> i mean i just feel like that's um the dream is just to be able to say like never never sort of stay in one place you know they just they just put out that bootleg series from from his christian period and and i was always very confused by like street legal and and, and by that moment and then yeah you listen to it now and it's just like that's actually in some ways like musically the purest form of dylan trying to create gospel or there's that bootleg that went around forever that now some of the songs are on a couple of the bootleg series of um of him and, and Johnny Cash together, you know, playing Girl from the North Country. Well, they have the joint Girl from the North Country, but there's there they did shows where they did like, you know, 15 Johnny Cash songs and Johnny sang on, oh, on wow. um on on like 15 Dylan songs and they did that good old Mountain Dew and they did some of those bluegrass songs and you know, it's like there that was such a silly vocal period for Dylan, but you're just like, Oh, he's just trying to sound like Hank Williams and the best he can. <laughs> I mean, I just think, you know, he both, he had both the, he had enough strength in his background of understanding the history that he, that, that he could do somebody else's music and not have it be pastiche. I always loved that Dylan and I don't know what he actually thought, but I, he always seemed to just give no fucks. It was like on no stage in 66 right. when right. that guy yelled Judas. Yep. And he said, I don't believe you. You're a liar. And then he turns around to the band and says, play it fucking loud. And it's all <laughs> because he plugged in. Yep. He always was determined to do what he wanted to do. And the rest of us be damned. We can catch up with him or we can go elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, and I guess bringing it back to where we were on like revolution, you know, revolution in some ways requires people who give like all the fucks. And yeah. so, um, but then at some point decide to stop giving them. And so uh, yeah. I think, I think that's sort of a, um, like that Ouroboros is always going to be like the toughest line to walk. I guess I'll say this, like, uh, I don't know if you read that John Williams book stoner that was huge, like 10 mm -hmm. years ago. And mm -hmm. I like everybody else had never heard of John Williams and I like everybody else then went to see his other three books and they're totally different. Like they have no relationship whatsoever to each other, all three, all yeah. four of them. And, and I think it actually hurt his career in that period, not to just write another campus novel, right? Like I think yeah. if he'd written Stoner and then he'd written like Stoner Two electric boogaloo like that. <laughs> Maybe we all wouldn't know who John Williams was. And so I think there's a danger, right? Which is that like, there's a great moment in, in uh, one of the early bootleg series things where Dylan's playing a Halloween show and everybody's talking about their costume and, and he just says i've got my bob dylan mask on <laughs> and it's just like i think that's the hard part is just being like to make sure that you've got your bob dylan mask on even even when you're writing in, in you know seven different books with seven different topics but that's a perfect thing for him to say because bob dylan is a construct that's right that's right exactly he's still jewish robert zimmerman from the midwest right yeah all right I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. 
You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. So the first one, favorite bluegrass artist, Doc Watson, Ralph Stanley, Bill Monroe. I know who you're going to pick. That's a tough one. Ralph Stanley doesn't call himself a bluegrass artist. He says he's a, he says he plays mountain music, uh, but, but he's totally bluegrass. Uh, I, you know, right now, because I'm playing tons of guitar, Doc Watson. Well, I stand corrected. I thought you were going to pick Bill Monroe. I know. I know. I, you know, over the quarantine, I spent a ton of time trying to learn fingerstyle. So I've been like, uh, I, I love mandolin, but I've been, I've been working on guitar almost exclusively for two or three years now. Okay. Well, let's not forget there's punk in Boomer One, too. Yes. So favorite punk band slash artist, Big Star, Television, Patti Smith. Wow. Great picks. Big Star. Okay. So and actually, so there's like literally songs in which you can hear Alex Chilton play like a bluegrass style G run at the end of like a early CBGB's punk song. Yeah. The Circle Squares. I love that the character Cassie works at the Chelsea Hotel. I was just there for the first time back in October 2022. Really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've totally refurbished it. It's not like it used to be. I in, know, I you know, know, years, years and years ago. But it was this magical experience walking in there, going, "Oh my god, all this history." In a in a future thing, I have a character based on uh, Leonard Cohen. So I've been reading tons of Leonard Cohen, and and there's mm. many amazing. They're actually like in the biography. There's a long story about where Chelsea Hotel Number Two and comes from with the James Joplin stuff. It's amazing. Okay, that song is like straight up, like out of a diary, basically. Nice. Yeah. All right, here's another category. Music formats, cassettes, CDs, vinyl. Vinyl. Uh-huh. Most <laughs> people are picking that. Best version of Pretty Polly, the song. Ooh. So, so Cassie's band in the book, at the beginning of the novel, they're called the Pollys. And in the scene where she first meets Mark, her band and his both play a version of that traditional song, Pretty Polly. So let's, let's see if you have a favorite version. Pete Seeger, The Dillards, Ralph Stanley, or Judy Collins. Gotta go Ralph Stanley. I feel like it's such a central Ralph Stanley song. Okay. Here's the last category, and this one's very important. Think really hard about it. Best rock guitarist. Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page. (laughs) Oh man, that's a tough one. Be careful here. Uh can I say Stevie Ray Vaughan or that wasn't on the list? Never mind. Uh, I guess it's gotta be Jimmy Page. On the only one since I've been loving you, though. Okay. I, I'm going to get in serious trouble with that category <laughs> at some point, but I'm still going to keep it in there for I now. I love it. I love it. All right. So we're moving near the end here. And I usually end the author interviews with that stock. What have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about question? But we already know you've got a new book out, The 12th Commandment, which was named one of the million's most anticipated books of 2023. So we know what you're up to right now. You're probably up to your eyeballs in promotional gigs. So can you tell me a little bit about that book? Yeah. So as per the Bob Dylan thing, it's a totally different book. Uh, it's yeah. uh, there is, there's only been in uh, world religious history, one Islamic and Jewish sect. They're called the Dun May. They're followers of uh, this 17th century false Messiah named Shebzai Svi. Uh, and actually like uh, 20,000 of them still live in Turkey and Istanbul today. Mm. So I've always been interested in that, like the kind of mysticism aspect of, of that religion. And, and well, I mean, Sufism and Kabbalah. And so long story short, I imagined a group of them in central Ohio and there's been a murder in their midst. The Dome themselves, like the actual non-fictional sect, have 18 commandments and their 12th commandment is essentially um, if any of the members of the community tell about the community to outsiders, uh, they shall be killed. 
there's been mm-hmm. a there's been a murder of the the prophet of their group's um son and uh a younger man who's working in a magazine comes out there and 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 finds his way into their situation and uh and over the course of uh the book we find out things about that murder. Now Dan, I've read that one of the inspirations for the novel has to do with a friend of yours who who was murdered when you I think you had just graduated from college and she was still a college student, Emily Murray. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was a very uh very hard situation. The, the year after yeah. I, I graduated, a girl who had been a good friend of mine and part of my friend group um went missing for about 70 days and people just assumed that she had gone off and gotten lost somewhere but she had actually been abducted by a serial killer who had uh, killed a couple other people and I actually my first job at a undergrad was working as an editor at Esquire magazine and so I had like no reportorial skills but I, I got in the car and, and drove out to Ohio and did a bunch of reporting um and wrote like a 5000 word piece about the murder for for the magazine and mm. the hard things about writing for a magazine is is so in a piece like that the story inevitably becomes more about the killer than it does about the person who was killed and so yeah. there was just was so much I learned both about Emily, but also the legal system there and, 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 and what that part of sort of like very rural central and Southeast Ohio was like. And so, you know, it was always sort of like in my craw that, that probably some of that stuff would find its way into some fiction. I um, can't wait to read the novel. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I loved Boomer One. Oh, you're so sweet. So yeah, so we're, um, we didn't talk about it, but the, we're going to start shooting the film in uh, the summer. I didn't bring it up because the last email, you when you mentioned that, it was kind of under wraps. And I thought, I'm just going to let him, if he wants to bring it up. There's only so much I'm, I'm, I can talk about. But yeah, we know we have a director. We have uh, two of the three leads attached. And we're just waiting to get the Julia characters uh, settled. And uh, we're going to shoot either midsummer or early fall. Congratulations. Yeah. So we'll see. It's been fun. I mean, these things can still go sideways, but uh, we're about as far as you can get through. Yes, you're moving along. Without, without shooting as you can be without actually getting there. So. Absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that all goes through. Thank you. And good luck with your own work. Well, thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show. And keep up with Dan at his website, danieltorday.com. Find him on Twitter at Daniel Torday and Instagram, dtorday. And pick up a copy of his novel, Boomer One, and his other books at your local indie bookstore and wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then Ty Gilpin will drop by to school me on bluegrass music. Back in a moment. Down the road here from me, there's an old holler tree where you lay down a dollar or two. Go on around the bend, come back again. There's a jug full of that good old mountain dew. Hey, this is Ty Gilpin, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. 
And we're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Ty Gilpin to the show. Ty plays mandolin with the bluegrass band Unspoken Tradition and is music marketing director for Crossroads Studios near Asheville, North Carolina, which is also where I live, so I guess that makes us neighbors. Thanks for joining me on the show, neighbor. Hey, so happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Now, you also co-host a bluegrass podcast with Daniel Mullins. Yes, uh, we uh, Daniel Mullins and I launched a podcast called Walls of Time, which was mainly a uh, mainly a Daniel Mullins effort in production. He was out field recording uh, some of the biggest names and most well known ones over the years in bluegrass. We've done two seasons. He is about to launch on his own the third season. I've gotten too uh, bogged down and busy with different things that just take up my time here at the label. So I think Daniel's going to press on with that, but it's been a real pleasure doing the last two and, you know, check that one out. If you know anything about bluegrass at all, you're going to see some really big and familiar names. It's a great way also to become familiar with the who's who of artists in the genre. Mm -hmm. Anybody from Dill McCurry to Sierra Hole to some legendary folks, including J.D. Crow. We've got some industry inside people. We've got musicians. We've got Younger folks, first-generation artists, covers everything, and Daniel's really done a great job with that effort, and I have to uh, applaud him. I was sort of a background commentator, producer, scriptwriter. Daniel did all the heavy lifting on that, so we're sure proud to have that out there in the the pod universe. In podcast land. All right, well, where can people find it? What platforms are you on? It's on all of them. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere. Uh, Walls of Time podcast. Nice. All right. Well, the focus of this episode is Daniel Torday's novel, Boomer One. The book includes three main characters, Mark, Cassie, and Julia, who are bluegrass musicians. So the core of the story may not be music, but I do think you could say that bluegrass is the connective tissue. So I figured it was worth exploring, especially since I don't know that much about this style of music besides a few Bill Monroe tunes and, of course, the theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies by Flat and Scruggs. So that's where you come in. Give us a Spark Notes version of the history of bluegrass and some of the hallmarks of it, some of the distinctive aspects of it that you immediately know you're listening to bluegrass music when you hear it. Sure. I think the most common question for most people who are just getting familiar with, like yourself with bluegrass is why it's named that. It gets its name from Bill Monroe, who called his band the Bluegrass Boys because he wanted to identify with his home state back in the late 30s and 40s. It didn't become a genre unto itself until you had these splinter groups. You know, Bill Monroe was a musical pioneer. He was doing exclusively his own kind of music, which was a updated uh, derivative of uh, folk music, hillbilly music, you know, old time music. He was updating it, combining Irish fiddle tunes and ballads, uh, singing tradition with country blues and um, other sped up versions of what ultimately, be- you know, kind of became rockabilly and ultimately rock and roll. But Bill Monroe was his own creator of this kind of music until he had the imitators come along. And once the imitators came along, you start to see more and more bands doing that same kind of sound that he had. Mm-hmm. And so common cultural reference to what was meant by this kind of music. They referred to it as bluegrass music because that was you know, kind of the, the band that they had heard doing it mostly. You had the seminal lineup of bluegrass music, which was uh, Lester Flat, Earl Scruggs, and Bill Monroe uh, in the late 40s. 
And with Earl Scruggs, who was from uh, a town near where we are in Asheville, Shelby, North Carolina, invented the three-finger roll style that you most commonly hear on bluegrass banjo. And that updated the sound from a more frailing banjo sound, and it became one that was more adopted by every banjo player just about since that wanted to call themselves bluegrass because it was more exciting, it was uh, you know more flashy, and it went along with Bill Monroe's sense of being hard-driving and flashy as well. So that was uh, when Flat and Scruggs started their own band, breaking away from Bill Monroe. A lot of times they would get requests to play that bluegrass music, and that was usually referring to the early catalog that they had recorded with Bill Monroe. So as you get more imitators and the genre grows, it ultimately becomes referred to as bluegrass music. And it's fairly unmistakable, I think, uh, when you hear it as compared to other genres, as compared to country music or blues or rock and roll or even rockabilly, because you've got that five-string banjo roll. You've got mandolin, it's usually doing rapid fire noting. You've got violin and country music, of course, it's referred to as Fiddle. Fiddle. Yeah, you've got the upright bass. You've got the guitar, acoustic guitar. Sometimes you have resophonic guitar, commonly known as the dobro. And that's either a five or a six piece uh, bluegrass outfit. That's what, you know, people most, most associate w- with that particular sound. So it's acoustic. Yeah, it was acoustic. And, and all of it for a long time was classified under the big country, country and Western heading. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had uh, people that were headlining and working, playing music on the Grand Ole Opry. That would be from anywhere from Kitty Wells to Bill Monroe to Hank Snow and Hank Williams. Uh, so it was all sort of the same kind of rule-based in some cases, it was called hillbilly music and eventually formed to be country and bluegrass, a uh, genre of that. I wouldn't say it's really a subgenre of country music. I think it's probably just a, um, something that, that exists on, a, on, the same, on the same plane these days. One of the things about bluegrass that strikes me is that musicians often cover and adapt the same songs. I gather that is a tr- that is a, a characteristic of bluegrass. Absolutely, you know, bluegrass music is community music uh, as much as it is anything. It's participatory music. So, in any kind of folk music tradition, you've got people. Uh, exchanging uh, their versions of a particular song. A a lot of times these are hearkening back to specific recordings rather than just passed down versions. Mm -hmm. Those specific recordings can be interpreted or at least played in different kinds of ways from region to region. There's definitely a definable style that uh, might be more associated with uh, certain areas of Western North Carolina, as opposed to say, you know, Denver, Colorado, which has a huge uh, bluegrass fan base. Really? Yeah. Denver's a huge bluegrass market. A lot of your new grass and uh, cutting edge groups have since uh, come out of that Colorado scene. Going back to the idea of taking a traditional song and adapting it, 
one of the characters in Boomer One is in a band called the Pollies. That band gets its name from that old song, Pretty Polly. Can you talk to me about the evolution of that song? Sure. Pretty Polly and the bluegrass uh, sense probably is, well, in Western North Carolina, we most closely associate that song with Carter and Ralph Stanley, specifically Ralph Stanley, who sang the high lonesome version of that as the high lead tenor vocal on it. But, you know, that's a great example of, of a song that's come over from the British Isles tradition. It's very much in line with the, um, murder ballad tradition. In the mid to late 1700s, a lot of these ballads from the British Isles were emerging, or at least they were being, uh, they've been historically noted as coming from that time. Pretty Polly was uh, a perfect example of that. It came, actually, the story, it's uh, originated as a uh, ship's carpenter who uh, murdered his pregnant girlfriend before sailing off to sea and was uh, then haunted by a ghost on the ship and eventually uh, passed away on the ship, and it kind of became folk legend. As the uh, decades and years went on and the song itself leapt across the pond and became part of the Southern Appalachian tradition, the uh, story itself changed dramatically to a spurned lover story, and it's sort of sung in two parts. It's the uh, villainous male spurned lover talking to the female who is wise and wary of his intentions as they as he leads her out into the woods to ultimately meet her fate but i think the uh ship carpenter or even the carpenter's ghost was one of the original titles of that oh wow okay and molly was one of the early associations with her name instead of polly and it's hard to know exactly when these things you know that they happen uh, organically and and um not necessarily in the direct way of a, of a actual recording, but rather in the folk tradition of the story getting changed and, and passed around. I know Doc Boggs is one of the earliest performers who was recorded doing it in its current form. It's been, uh, you know, recorded and played. There's lots of versions you can find. If you look up Pretty Polly on any uh, streaming platform, you can see a whole list of people that have done it. Mm-hmm. I think Ralph Stanley and his style of it, and the tradition of the Stanley Brothers murder ballad, is probably the one that's most closely associated with uh, bluegrass music. That's where uh, that's where I first heard it. I think a lot of uh, people in my world, uh, pickers and, and performers in my world, would would note Ralph's version. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. I'm also interested. You mentioned the Grateful Dead earlier. I'm also interested in the intersection of bluegrass and '60s rock bands like the Grateful Dead because there was definitely a bluegrass influence on that band particularly in Working Man's Dead. Jerry Garcia started off as a banjo player, and I think one part of the roots of the dead were a jug band. Talk to me about that, specifically about the dead or other bands of that era who were influenced by the bluegrass style. Yeah, I would say the Grateful Dead being a primary one, especially one that's had a lot of influence on bringing bluegrass beyond just it being music that's regionally passed down in the uh 
rural South, uh, it, it sort of not commercialized it, but brought it to different kinds of listeners, especially as the legacy of the Grateful Dead influenced, you know, well, there's tons of examples of uh, college bands that were formed to play bluegrass after being exposed to it through their love of the Grateful Dead music. Mm. Amazon has a great multi-part docu-series on the Grateful Dead called What a Long Strange Trip. Yeah. And one of the earliest episodes talks about uh, Jerry playing banjo and the early Mr. Magoo's Jug Band that they started as uh, their initial uh, version that eventually got changed to the Warlocks and then the Grateful Dead. But it was that roots music thing, you know. Jerry um, often said he was trying to play the guitar like a banjo. By doing that, you're going to invent your own kind of style. And he was associated with other grass musicians, David Grisman being a great example of that. But if you think about the revival of the folk era that was going on in the early 60s, which is when uh, Jerry was coming into his own as an artist and a musician prior to uh, the Grateful Dead really taking off, he was influenced by a lot of that you know, early folk tradition, which they were uh, rediscovering, a lot of college kids at that time, rediscovering bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And uh, using a lot of the old ballad-style traditions to influence what they recorded. Well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry anymore. Cause when life looks like easy street, there is your door think this through with me let me know your mind another example that's a big uh, 60s group is the birds the birds yes. uh, the, Hillman, the Hillman brothers were a big uh, bluegrass group and ultimately um, the birds hired the ultimate bluegrass guitar player a guy named Clarence White who was uh, probably one of the most influential him Doc Watson and ultimately, his contemporary, uh, Tony Rice, the big influential guitar players, and maybe you can even put Jerry Garcia in that category as well, that influenced the way current modern and updated bluegrass is being played now. So you can really trace a big through line from the Grateful Dead, uh, from the 60s of folk revival, from Jerry Garcia, and the legacy of that group bringing so much of the material that was shared with bluegrass, you know, a lot of the murder ballads and some of the things that um, Robert Hunter uh, ended up writing that sounded a lot like old bluegrass songs. You mentioned The Working Man's Dead. That's a perfect example. Cumberland Blues, that sounds like a bluegrass uh, standard. In fact, there are um, there's some uh, contemporary bluegrass groups, the Traveling McCurries. Bill hmm. McCurry uh, kids are out there with their own band, and they they do a Grateful Dead set right now. And Cumberland Blues is a big part of that. So you're seeing a lot of these uh, contemporary jam band, jam grass bands uh, that even got their start in bluegrass that are gravitating more towards that jam scene, which is influenced by the Grateful Dead and playing more and more Grateful Dead music. More examples might be the infamous String Dusters. And, of course, our uh, newest juggernaut to the bluegrass scene, uh, Billy Strings. I ain't slim seven days, living eighty and three. If the fit of me has got a damn good hold of me. My tweaker friends have got me to the point of no return. I just took the ladder to the bulb and watched it burn. Despite the sin, the sin has got me here. 
Yeah, you mentioned him to me, and and I've listened to some of his stuff, and he's really fantastic. He is. He's doing something that uh, is always hard to do. He's he's got the chops, so he can really play the music, but he's also got a look and an approach of uh, you know a young rocker. Uh huh. And at a time when uh, people are looking for something different and for something more authentic, he's blending a lot of really great uh, worlds there. The excitement and energy of a rock-type show with the uh, instrumental prowess and finesse that I think comes uh, only when you've uh, really delved deeply into um, studying bluegrass music, which he has. Doc Watson, Tony Rice, all those guys, Clarence White, I'm sure, being big influences on uh, Billy. In fact, he worked with us uh, here at Mountain Home doing a tribute to the Kentucky Colonels, which was uh, Clarence and Roland White's bluegrass outfit, which was a also a California-based outfit back in the uh, early 60s. They were on the Andy Griffith Show along with the Dillards. So you've got some great crossroads of media there. You know, you mentioned the Beverly Hillbillies. There's been Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. The Andy Griffith Show. There's been Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's always been these great intersections of a wider um, exposure to this kind of music. And then, my God, Deliverance. Who can forget dueling banjos? We would love to. (laughs) I bet you would. (laughs) We'd love to to forget the negative stereotypes of uh, Appalachian folks. (laughs) (laughs) No, those episodes of the Andy Griffith Show with the Darling family, and they were the Dillards. They were actually the Dillards that were playing the Darling family. Those are fantastic. Yeah, bring your string and instrument, Sheriff. Oh, I didn't think we'd have time for any music. You got time to breathe, you got time for music. <laughs> How many strings are you still? Well, there's six on my guitar. Well, here's one with five. Just kind of let that thumb hang free and enjoy the music. Hey, how about playing Never Hit Your Grandma with a Great Big Stick? Oh, Dad, that makes me cry. Well, how about Dooley? Oh, that's a good one. I want to do way we go. Now, Dooley was a good old man. He lived below the mill. Dooley had two daughters and a party gal and still One gal watched the boiler, the other watched the spout And mama corked the bottles when old Dooley fetched them out Dooley slipping up the holler, Dooley trying to make a dollar yeah, that was Dillard's playing the Darlings. At some point, maybe might have been prior to the introduction of the Darlings, the Kentucky Colonels were on Andy Griffith as some, you know, bluegrass group that Andy was jamming with. Um, so there were two sets of California-based uh, groups on that show as well. I was going to ask you about the current state of bluegrass, but it sounds to me like it's pretty healthy. It is healthy. I think every so often it has this big revival type atmosphere. Uh, We mentioned some of the media influences of that. You know, I think the last major one was um, probably been 20 some odd years ago with the old brother films. But I think what what's happened now is we have a true groundswell grassroots growing of it. And no pun intended there. You know, it's like I say, it's participatory music. And it's something that was really never going to go away because of the cultural grip it's got uh, embedded into so many um, uh, multi-generations of players. But, you know, it's fun to play. It's fun to sing. It's fun to participate in it. 
And we've gotten more and more folks that have gotten really good at it. You know, it's almost like with sports, every evolution of musician, uh, their talent level and the bar keeps getting set uh, higher and higher. So now we've got this fantastic new uh, roster of young people that have come along. Uh, We mentioned Billy Strings, who's probably been the biggest uh, juggernaut in the genre, who's gone from playing, you know, local bars and bluegrass festivals to doing arenas in the last year. Wow. Got uh, the jam band scene, which is an interesting arc uh, that we uh, have seen. Uh, We mentioned it in reference to the Grateful Dead, but it's just really been something that's amped up attendance to see this kind of music. We've got, like I mentioned before, the infamous string dusters. You see folks like Green Sky Bluegrass, Yonder Mountain String Band, the String Cheese Incident. And these are all what you would uh, call new grass or progressive bluegrass or jam grass groups. That area of the genre is really going great. Something that you might see that's more in the traditional vein, that's something, the kind of style that's more passed down through uh, genera- generationally or regionally, is also as strong as ever. In fact, um, I think these two spheres are influencing each other. Fantastic musicianship coming from groups like Lonesome River Band, Balsam Range, there's a group called Sideline. There's just you know, look up any uh, current festival flyer. The young lady who won uh, a Grammy for Musician of the Year, as well as for her album, album Crooked Tree, is Molly Tuttle. Molly Tuttle is a young lady with a young band that's playing, you know, straight up bluegrass. She's got her um, uh, progressive twist to it. She's got some progressive subject matters of the song that are that are different than the little cabin home on the hill or the things you might hear coming out of the first generation, but, you know, and she's got jam elements and um, fantastic uh, presentation of what she does too. But, you know, the album itself, very much a bluegrass album. And uh, she's really making a lot of um, noise out there in the greater music world. So what we're seeing for one of the first times ever is we're seeing an artist driven exposure to this music in the bigger music world based on the talents of the artist rather than based on uh, a, a movie media gimmick, you know, connection. So that's why I say that we've got a um, something that we haven't really seen uh, maybe since the 60s folk revival, in my opinion. That's exciting. Yeah, and it's happening on the merits of the talent of the musicians and the music itself. So I think it's really a great new landscape for, for bluegrass. And I'm certainly uh, proud to have stayed with it. And, uh, you know, I'm just honored to be able to support and do the work I am here at the label for some of these fantastic musicians. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ty. This was amazing. This adds a lot to the episode. Where can folks find out more about you and Unspoken Tradition? Well, uh, Unspoken Tradition, of course, is on all the streaming platforms. Uh, We perform regionally, nationally. Um, Unspokentradition.com has got our uh, calendar up. It's always changing. You can follow us on social media. Crossroads Entertainment and Marketing. Each of the uh, Imprints uh, have their own webpage. So organicrecords.com has its uh, own website and Mountain Home Music Company. You can check out what's new from all of our artists and our um, recorded releases at either of those two uh, spots as well. And I just want to say that I love your solo album, Crooked Hollows. It's amazing. Uh, thanks. Listeners, you can find Crooked Hollows by Ty Gilpin on such music platforms as Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. I'll put links in the show notes. 
Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And thanks to Daniel Torday, whose wonderful novel Boomer One was the focus of this episode. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Boomer One wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.